today, you know, we're celebrating Easter, which is pretty cool. And I would just say this to you. If you're considering faith, I'm not sure there's a better day to think about it. Now, I will tell you this, that my community group, my small group, which everybody should be in a small group of some kind, had, were teasing me a couple weeks ago because they were saying, hey, we can almost give the Easter message for you because they've been around LifeHouse for a little while now. And like, we've heard it so many times and they were, you know, throwing out the lines that I use every Easter. And it made me feel a little sad, not really, but, you know, I thought, man, that's crazy. Then if you're here and you were here last Easter, you may go, that was familiar, at least here online. Because the Easter message is so central to our faith, it really doesn't change very much. And I would just say this, if you're here because like you wanted your mom to know you showed up in church today because she's always bugging you about going to church, or you're here because there's a cute girl in the room and you're hoping to talk to her afterwards, and that's okay, just don't be a stalker because that's really weird in church when someone stalks you. Or maybe, maybe you're here because you just feel so much guilt over something in your life and you didn't know what else to do but like to go to church on Easter weekend. Or maybe for you, you're just trying to figure out faith. You're trying to ask some questions. I want you to know that I'm glad you're here no matter where you're coming from today. And no matter what your objections are to people like me and to churches and religious institutions, I hope you can push past that to see Jesus clearly today. In fact, if a church person or a pastor like me has said something, especially from stage, that made you never want to come back to church, I hope we can get through that today and get to what really matters and that we would consider faith. Because today, we're going to look at and try and figure out history's mystery. Because there is a mystery in the history, especially when it comes to church. And, and here's what it is. That today, like two or three billion people, a third of the world maybe, are gathering to celebrate the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we got to talk about it because there's no explanation for how that could have happened. Think about this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was a day labor carpenter from a place called Nazareth. And even the people from Nazareth said, nothing good can come from Nazareth. And yet, we're talking about him 2,000 years later, and Jesus did not have a YouTube channel. How can you do anything and influence the world without a YouTube channel or Facebook or Twitter? or TikTok. I'm not sure how Jesus would do TikToks, but that would be really interesting in this day and age, wouldn't it? I mean, he couldn't even have a commercial on the old thing we called the you know, network television programs. And yet we talk about him. And also, if you and I went out to lunch today and we sat down and I said, hey, tell me something that you know about the emperor Nero, who was the emperor of the greatest nation on the world 2,000 years ago in the same time range as Jesus, I bet most of you, and most, you know, myself included, we wouldn't know much about the Emperor Nero or even more about the more famous Emperor Caesar Augustus. You may know one or two things from history class, but that would be it. <laughs> Let's just go a little deeper and embarrass ourselves a little bit more. If I said to you, hey, tell me something about the presidents that existed 100, 125 years ago, at least for me, I would have to look up what presidents those were. I would not know much about them because I just can't remember everything. Yet, for many of you, even if you're not like a church person, which is great that you're here, you probably know more about Jesus than you know about Caesar, Augustus, Nero, and most of our presidents. And how is that? When Jesus had no army and had no empire, all he had was a message, and Jesus' message. Jesus' message was part of the problem when it came to Jesus, because Jesus' message, it didn't advocate liberation or revolution. Now, maybe you're not a Christian. One of the things that frustrates you about us Christians is you're always hearing us talk about, yeah, we need our freedom and our rights and our revolution. We should stand up, stand up, and stand up. And your perception 
of Christians is we're always trying to have some kind of revolution. You just need to know that when Jesus showed up on the planet, he was not there to overthrow anything. In fact, he said to his followers one day, give to Caesar what is Caesar's when it came to taxes. I mean, who does that in our world and does it freely? Because Jesus was all about this new kingdom that he brought. I'm not a threat to the kingdoms of this world because I'm just going to take the whole thing over anyway. And his message was so simple and it was so central to what he taught and how he lived. He would say this, the time has come. And I just want you to think about this as we walk through our time together this morning. He meant now is the time. And maybe for you, the time is now. Maybe you showed up here for like a divine purpose, to have a divine encounter. Because Jesus said that the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And here's what I believe, and I'm not sure how to explain this. I think God's here, and he's close. And maybe for you and maybe for me, he would say, today's the day. The time has come. I'm with you. Repent, which just simply means turn towards Jesus and embrace all of who he is and believe the good news. And the good news is God is near and you're not far. And again, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's like he, when he was before Pilate, it's like, Pilate, you have nothing to fear from me. I'm not here to take over Rome. It's why Pilate said those crazy things like, I can't find anything wrong with Jesus. He's not after my job. He's not after the emperor's job. He's not after this kingdom. He's bringing a whole big, better kingdom than the ones of this earth. And the problem, though, with Jesus, what made everybody so frustrated with him, is that Jesus' message was all about Jesus. This set him apart from every influencer, leader, and movement direction leader in the world because his message was all about him. He would say this, Jesus' message was all about Jesus. He never asked his followers to trust his ideas. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus didn't have brilliant ideas and brilliant theories and brilliant truths, but it went way past just his ideas. He instructed his followers to trust in him. He would say, trust me, not just what I'm saying, not just the principles, not just the commandments. I need you to put your trust in me. It is crazy. And some of the people got it when John the Baptist saw Jesus on the crowd on the Jordan River. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John recognized that. When his friend Lazarus was dead and been in the tomb for four days, moments before he brought Lazarus out of the grave that eyewitnesses saw, Jesus went to Martha, Lazarus' sister. And he said to Martha, he said, your brother's dead. I need you to know, though, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Not my ideas, not my theories, not that I bring the resurrection, not that I have the resurrection. She, he looked boldly into her eyes with witnesses around and said, I am the resurrection. Who says that? It's crazy. It's outrageous. He would say things like, if you've seen God, if you've seen me, you've seen God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is what I would tell you. If you've walked away from faith or you feel like you've just kind of drifted a little bit, which we all have a propensity to do, it may be because we've been looking at everything religious except Jesus. And I want to invite you this morning to put your eyes squarely on Jesus. I mean, here's the challenge. When Jesus died, no one believed his message because his message was all about him. And when Jesus died, no one believed his claims. Because how do you trust the claims of a man that just died on a cross when he's supposed to be the center of his own message? And when Jesus died, the movement died with him. 
And this is the crossroads we all come to, and maybe you're struggling with this, because Jesus would claim things like, I'm the resurrection and the life. Which means, you know, one of really three things. The first is, he's a lunatic. Are you kidding, Jesus? How can you be the resurrection and the life? You're just a dude walking on the earth. Or he's a liar, intentionally lying. Or... He's telling the truth. And this is where the tension comes in for some of us because, you know, we kind of like to say, and it's easy to say that Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a great prophet, but he wasn't God. Well, here's the challenge with that. Great teachers aren't lunatics. Great teachers are not liars. So it's either he's a lunatic, he's a liar, or he was telling the truth. And this is what you have to stumble over when it comes to our faith. But this is also what makes Easter so important. But where we find ourselves with his followers on Easter morning before they discover this amazing thing is they'd lost all hope. And think about this when it comes to what Jesus taught. What is more ridiculous? What is more silly? I'm going to go even farther. What's more stupid than love your enemies? Think about that. Love your enemies. That means those people that you cannot stand you're supposed to love. Those people that have hurt you, you're supposed to love. Those people that hurt your kids, you're supposed to love. If you're a Democrat, you're supposed to love Republicans. Are you kidding me? How could we ever do that? And if you're a Republican, you're supposed to love Democrats. Somebody in the lobby after first service said, I don't know how to love, and he, he named a name, but I know I have to. But really, without Jesus, without what happened at the resurrection morning on Easter, it's ridiculous to ask anybody that thing. Not to mention the people that followed Jesus, his closest disciples, when he died on that cross, they were all cowards. They all ran away. I mean, my goodness, Peter, like his main guy, he denied knowing Jesus when a middle school girl asked him if he was with Jesus. And he just said, no, no, no. And his mom and his friends and James and John and Andrew, they all just left him to die by himself. There were no Christians on the cross. And you know why there are no Christians on the cross? Because messiahs don't die. And when you claim to be a messiah and you die, you leave. That guy was not the guy we thought. And the son of God can't be killed. And the resurrection and the life cannot be crucified. But we find Jesus dead. Now, with all that said, and I'm trying to make a point, how is it that 2,000 years later, a third of the world is singing and celebrating and talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. How did this church movement survive Rome when it was led by cowards that just walked away from Jesus? And these followers in the first century, they gave up their lives for what they saw to the point that they were burned alive, they lost their heads, and they were crucified for what they had seen after the crucifixion of their Savior. And here's my guess. They were so surprised on Easter morning that they were full of joy and probably full of embarrassment and remorse. Now, I'm going to tell you a story that's, you know, for me is a little bit like that, but not anything near that kind of surprise, joy, and remorse. But a year ago, um, I turned 50 years old in April. And it was during the whole COVID thing was coming into play, and we were on the shutdown, lockdown thing. And so I celebrated my 50th birthday. And man, 50, guys, I mean, are you kidding me? 50-year-old dudes in the room, it's tough, isn't it? Now, the 70-year-old dudes in the room are like, you have no idea how tough it is. But 50-year-olds, it's tough. And if you're 25 and you tell me your back hurts, I'm going to punch you in the throat. So shut up. Your back doesn't hurt. Come on. You're 25. 
Anyway, sorry. Uh, I'm, so I celebrate you know, my 50th birthday at home with just a few of my family members. And it was great. We had a great day. We ate steak for dinner. And my mom made a cake. And I just decided I'm putting on my nastiest, oldest pair of shorts and my most comfortable T-shirt. Guys, you know which one I'm talking about? The one that's been around for 15 years and has a big tear in it? Wives, girlfriends, you know which one I'm talking about. You hate the fact he has not thrown that away. Tina keeps trying to throw it away, and I keep digging it out of the trash. Love it, love it. Anyway, so, so I'm in my most comfortable clothes, just hanging out with my family. And Tina says a couple times during the day, hey, um, are you going to put on some nicer clothes for your birthday and get cleaned up and may, maybe shower? I'd played golf, so I was a nasty mess. I just didn't care. It's my birthday. I'm 50. I get to do what I want. And I'm like, nope, I'm wearing what I'm wearing. We have dinner. After dinner, she said, hey, a couple from our uh, small group is going to come by and just say hey to you. And so Bill and Candy, they'll, they'll be here in about a half hour, meeting them in the driveway just to say hi. And I'm like, that's fine. And I walk out there, and Bill and Candy come by. And they like, hey, honk the horn. They just kept driving. I'm like, that's weird. I thought they were going to stop and talk to me. I mean, this is like high school. Nobody wants to say anything to me. That's kidding. I was popular in high school. Anyway, I don't know why I said that. Anyway, anyway, they, and then another couple in a car drove by our house. And this is before this thing was happening, if you remember. Another couple drove by our house and honking the horn. And I looked down the road, and there was like a hundred cars long of people and their kids were hanging out the windows and they're throwing things in my yard it was a great time and I felt overwhelmed but I just want to you know paint the scenario I was super thankful I was super surprised because I didn't expect it that everybody showed up but also I felt kind of bad because I'm in this nasty shirt I haven't showered in 24 hours I got an ice cold beverage in my hand and I'm like hey everybody how are you doing welcome to Pastor Matt's house right yeah, that's great. Yeah, I don't care. And so I felt this interesting tension of, of, hey, I'm so joyed that you're all here and I'm embarrassed that I didn't expect something more, right? It's just the way it is. Well, on Easter morning, they had no idea. They didn't expect Jesus to come back to life at all. Nobody was outside the tomb. Nobody was waiting. No one was counting down. No one was singing songs. No one was throwing the party. And we wonder, how did this whole thing go down that changed the world? And John, one of Jesus' closest friends, would simply say, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. John would say, I was there early on that first day. While it was still dark, and Mary Magdalene, she went on to the tomb, and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, you got to pause. This is really big. We do not get this at all. But in this culture, and this was wrong, and I'm so glad it's changing, but in this culture, women had no credibility and had no voice. So if you, you read this, you go, why in the world would women be there first? And if this story was made up, John, why would you put the women finding the empty tomb first? Because that would take credibility away from the story. And John would look at you and he would look at I and say, because that's exactly how it happened. And what happened up to this point is Jesus had been crucified on a cross between two criminals. He died, and two of his secret followers pull him off this cross. They wrap him up in a hurry to bury him before the Sabbath. They probably did a bad job, and on Sunday, after the Sabbath had passed, these women that loved Jesus probably thought, the men messed this one up. Let's go fix the burial stuff and get Jesus at least properly prepared. And, and so John tells us um, that so she came running, to Simon Peter and the other disciples. And she said, the one Jesus loved, and, and the one Jesus loved, I want to pause her just for a minute. 
I'm going to read this over again because I want to make sure I get this right. So she, Mary, came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And I just so love this. John's writing this. And he calls himself, or refers to himself every time he writes about himself in the scriptures as the one Jesus loved. Now, I just want you to catch this. Because after the resurrection, after what he knew about Jesus, after he had, you know, abandoned Jesus, he realized Jesus loved him so much that when he referred to himself, he just said, you know, Jesus loved me so much, I'm the one that Jesus loved. That's how he wrote that scripture. And I would just tell you this, I think John would look at you and go, you know what, you could be that same person. If you would look at yourself through Jesus' eyes, you would feel like you're the one that Jesus loves too. It's fascinating. So, the one Jesus loves said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. Now, in another telling of the story through Luke's eyes, this is what Luke tells us. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like they were nonsense. In other words... When Peter and John heard this news about this empty tomb, they weren't praising Jesus, singing songs. They were doubtful, and they thought the women were crazy. Back to John. He says, so Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, started for the tomb, but both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And you just got to see John writing this himself. He wants the world to know that he outran Peter. Listen, Peter's a little chunky, he eats too much, and he's slow, and I beat him to the tomb forever that will be in the annuals of the story of Jesus. So John gets there first. He says, he, or myself, I bent over and I looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And you know why John did not go into the tomb? Because it's a tomb, man. Who goes into an empty tomb? It was spooky. The stone had been rolled away. John keeps telling us the story. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and he went straight into the tomb because Peter was so rash and he would just do things without thinking about them. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. goes on. The cloth was still lying in its place, almost like the body just disappeared and the cloth dried right where it was when it was on the body separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, John, who had been reached, who'd reached the tomb first, also went inside. And I love this next part. And I think John wrote this with intentionality. He says, he saw and believed, or we saw and we believed. In this moment, John would say, this is when I believed. Now, you got to remember, Peter and John had been with Jesus for three years. They had seen water turned into wine. They'd seen dead people come back to life. They'd seen sick people healed. They'd seen waves that crashed like thunder, just calmed in a moment when Jesus said, be still. But it was this moment that they really believed because they were peering into an empty tomb, which led them to the thought and the truth that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they remembered what Jesus said about rising in three days. And I also wonder, if it reminded them in this moment of what the crowd said a day or two before, when Jesus hung on the cross and this crowd mocked him, if we just go back a couple days, they said, let this Messiah, this king, I mean, Jesus is suffering like unimaginable suffering on the cross. Let this king of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see, it's the same words, and believe. Just, just come on down, Jesus, and then we'll believe in you. 
This is what I'm convinced in that moment Jesus could have crushed that cross, turned it into splinters, but he didn't because the work was not done yet. And maybe you've never heard this before, but when he was on that cross, he was dying for my sin, he was dying for Peter's sin, and ultimately he was dying for your sin. Because you know this, anytime someone does something wrong, anytime someone sins, someone has to pay ultimately. And this perfect son of God was on the cross dying for the sins of the world, paying the price. And in this moment, the work isn't finished, but two days later, the work is finished, and now the tomb is empty. And now Peter and John, they have seen, and they were believing, and they were convinced. See, this is kind of important. Jesus' followers didn't re-engage because of something Jesus taught, but he taught amazing things. Jesus' followers, they re-engaged because someone they saw, and they saw Jesus because after the empty tomb, he shows up to them, reveals himself, spends time with them. And if you go on to read the rest of this amazing account from different authors, you'll know this, that Jesus returns to heaven. And after a little bit of time, God's very spirit is sent. And for all these men and women that believed, this is hard to explain, they were filled with his very spirit and his very power and Jesus' very presence. And it's a complicated thing to understand, but they were. And these men and women, especially the men who were once cowards, and they all disbanded and they all denied Jesus and they all ran away. Days later, weeks later, after the resurrection of Jesus and his power and his spirit living in them, they walked out in the streets and men that were once cowards now had courage And they began to preach and teach, and Peter was in the front. Peter, who denied Jesus' existence or their relationship three times, Peter just begins to let it all out and be able to tell the truth about his Savior. And it wasn't a 20-point message, and there weren't 27 commandments to go with it. It was a simple message with four parts of it. And the first was, guys, you killed him. But God raised him. We've seen him. Now say you're sorry. That was the message. You killed him. And Peter would have said, I killed him. But he was talking to the people that were literally there when they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Y'all killed him. He was talking to the religious leaders that had orchestrated this whole mess. But Peter knew better than to exclude himself because I killed him too. And the truth is, this is what we believe as Christians. We killed him. I killed him. Because my sin is why he was hanging there. Your sin is why he was hanging there. But God raised him. We've seen it. I mean, Thomas, get out of here. Tell him about putting your fingers and your hands in the holes in Jesus' fingers and his feet. And tell him about how Jesus has risen from the dead. And they started sharing this amazing message. And it was almost supernatural. In fact, it was supernatural. This is the full version of what Peter said. He said, you killed the author of life. Peter, where did you get this courage from? I was just so convinced of what I saw and God's strength in me. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of it. This is how we know we have seen it. Now, here's what's fascinating. In that day and age, in that moment, people believed like crazy. I mean, hundreds and thousands of people just decided, you know what? You're right, Peter. We're responsible. We're responsible for what happened to Jesus. What should we do? What do you do when you do something so wrong? What do you do with that? And Peter said, the answer is simple. He replied, repent. 
and be baptized, repent. And that obviously means admit that you've sinned and turn away from that sin, but more importantly, embrace Jesus in this life he's offering you. And here's what's so fascinating. People that have embraced Jesus, they just start going, you know what, I'm gonna follow Jesus wherever he asks me to go. I'm gonna start doing stuff that he's asked me to do and I'm gonna stop doing stuff he's asked me to do. And it's not like it's a law and it's not like it's oppressive and it's not like it restricts me. It literally sets me free when I follow Jesus because I've just decided that wherever he goes is the best place for me to go. When I follow him, my life is just in a better place. Not easier, not without pain sometimes, but it's better. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Why? Because there's no other name than that. For the forgiveness of your sins. I'm, I'm just convinced there's no better time to put your faith in Jesus than an Easter Sunday. And it's because of this, because of this whole forgiveness of your sins. Because maybe for you and for me, maybe for sure, we are going to stand before God someday. And when I stand before God someday and I'm accountable for what I've done, I mean, what am I going to say to God? Listen, I was a really good guy, God. But God knows everything I've done. I'm hoping he won't see what's not been so good. I was a really good guy. Well, that's not really true. Because there's things that I think about and I've done I don't want anybody to know about, right? What am I going to show God in my resume? Well, God, I showed up to church three times a month. And I gave some money and, you know, I sang some songs, which is all really good. But is that what's going to, you know, give me right standing with God? Or how about this? God, I'm going to try harder. And in that moment, there's no trying harder because it's over. We all come up short. And maybe you don't believe that, and I respect the fact that you don't believe that, but the people that follow Jesus believe that with all of their hearts. And this is what they would want us to know, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ solves history's greatest mystery. How this movement, how this faith survived 2,000 years, how it survived Rome, how today a third of the world leans in Jesus' direction, that his followers were cowards and no one was faithful in those days. And Jesus wasn't even in the center of his, or Jesus' teaching wasn't the center. He was the center. See, this is what they came to believe, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it punctuated the point of his crucifixion. And the reason for his crucifixion was the forgiveness of my sin and your sin and our sin. And it simply means that if you're a Christian, your faith is not in vain. Your trust and your leaning and your following and your sacrifice, it's not in vain. And it can mean when things are uncertain, and maybe you came today because life feels super uncertain. You know how it's going to work out in your marriage. You're not sure how it's going to work out with your kids or our economy or our government or your freedom and all those things. It feels so uncertain. But Peter would look at you and say, there was a day we felt the most uncertain we would ever feel. And we thought all hope was lost. But after the resurrection, we could trust and we could believe and we had something to hold on to. For you, maybe it's, it's peace. And peace certainly comes from trusting God with your life. But you know where a huge part of peace comes from? It comes when you lay your head down at night and you know you're forgiven. That if the, in the morning you, you wake up and your eyes open and you're standing before a holy God, that you can say, hey, Dad, I'm home. Dad, I'm here. And he would welcome you in like a father welcomes a son or a father welcomes a daughter that he loves. 
But it can also mean that you wake up in the morning, you open your eyes, and you look at your wife, and you know you're forgiven. You can be a better husband. You can look at your children and know that you are forgiven so you can work towards being a better father. You can look at yourself in the mirror and go, listen, I'm still a mess. I'm still working on some stuff. I haven't got it all figured out, but I am forgiven, and I'm going to lean and follow the one that gave his life for me. It changes everything. And when it came to Jesus' followers after the resurrection, this is, I think, what they thought. If a man can predict his death, predict his resurrection, and then pull it off by himself, we're going to go wherever he says to go. And we're going to give up whatever he calls us to give up. And here's the good news. That's not true because a pastor said it. And that's not true because a Sunday school teacher said it, or your mama said it, or your grandma said it. It's not even true because the Bible says it, although the Bible does say it. It's true because Jesus' friend Matthew saw it with his own eyes. And Mark, who heard Peter's story, wrote it down to make sure everyone would know Peter's story. And Luke, who said, I'm going to thoroughly investigate the story of Jesus, he wrote down the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And John, the one that Jesus loved, that's the way he felt about himself. He wrote down what he saw. That's why Peter made sure to say, I saw it happen. And oh my gosh, James, Jesus' brother, said that is my Lord and Savior because he predicted his death and his resurrection and my brother pulled it off. What would it take for you to believe your brother could do something like that except you saw him do it? And I I think all those guys would say, here's what we know and we believe after what we saw. God so loved the world that he gave. And maybe the only version of God you've ever known is a God that takes. He takes your joy. He takes your privilege. He takes your money. He takes, you know, your fun. These guys believe that God gave them something amazing. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And every time I read this, gave his only son, it just hits me really hard. I mean, I got the chance and the privilege this morning to sit be, or stand between my daughter and my son and sing about Jesus this morning. I don't get to do that because one's in college and the other lives out west. But I'm standing between my kids and I thought, this is the best Easter morning of all time. I wouldn't do anything. I would not do anything that someone hurt my children. And I love all of you and I love you guys online, but you just need to know I love my kids more than I love you. And if it's a choice between my kids and between you, I would choose my kids every time, every time. But your heavenly father, my heavenly father said, my son's gonna be given up for my children so I can bring them back, so they can have eternal life, so they can live with a purpose and a love that Maybe they're missing. It's why Jesus' message was always the time has come. It's right now. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Here's what I am convinced today, my friends. That God is here. He's calling. And he's not calling because of some story in church you heard. He's calling because there's something that actually happened in history that validates what Jesus did on that cross. To bring you to him. And then to let you be part of the kingdom of God to change the world that desperately, desperately needs it. So here's what I'm going to do. In just a second, I'm going to invite you to give your life to Christ, to put your faith in Jesus. 
And if you're here and you're not ready to do that, I just hope you come back next week. There's no pressure. In fact, you're not going to have to do anything. You're not going to have to raise your hand or get up this morning. I just want you inside to consider this. Because some of you have been coming for a while and you've been thinking and you've been asking questions and you decided, man, I, th- I think I believe. And what better day to put your faith in Jesus than on Easter Sunday, to put your hope in Jesus because hope has a name. So if you'd like to, you could bow your heads and you close your eyes, but you don't even have to do that. But if you're at a place this morning where you'd say, you know what, I need Jesus because I have never put my trust in him. In just a second, I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. Maybe for you, it's like, hey, you know what, through all this happened, I just feel like I've drifted. I've just kind of slipped away. God is not mad at you for that. He just wants you to come closer because he's wanting to come closer to you. And maybe for you, if your faith is solid right now, it's just a way to sure it up and make it just a little bit stronger. So if you need to put your faith in Jesus in any way, shape, or form, would you just pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, I'm putting my trust in your son, Jesus, who died for the forgiveness of my sins and rose to validate all that he said, all that he taught, and all that he did. Forgive me for my sins, the ones I talk about and the ones I never want to talk about. Forgive me for them all. Jesus, thank you for bearing my penalty and my punishment for what I did. Take my, take my life. I put my trust and my belief in who you are. And I thank you that you love me. And thank you that I have a hope and a future and a purpose in this life and the next. And it's all because of you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, I just pray for anyone and everyone that prayed that. Not that they used my exact words, but their heart was turned over to you. That they would know in this moment they can be secure in your love and your forgiveness. They can know that they're your children. And they can stand before you and know that they are forgiven because of a God that has done so much for them through his son, Jesus. Thank you for giving us hope, and thank you that that hope's name is Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.